Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we did a show about a month ago about the global warming emergency. <laughs> now, just recently, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change sent up an emergency flare. This is what I'm going to refer to it as the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They commissioned a report as part of the 2015 Climate Agreement, and that report's out right now. It's kind of scary. According to Ahmed Abdullah, an IPCC board member and chief negotiator for the Alliance of Small Island States, the report shows that we have only the slimmest of opportunities remaining to avoid unthinkable damage to the climate system that supports life as we know it. Now, small island states are in a lot of trouble. The sea's already rising, and there's a lot of inertia in that process. What I mean by inertia is what is causing the seas to rise is going to continue, and it's actually going to get worse. All right. I read through this whole report. There's a couple versions of it. Complex, dense, hard to understand, bureaucratic words that are almost impenetrable. And I learned a lot of new acronyms. Most importantly, I have a better idea on the efforts needed to limit global warming. Now, my personal belief is that this is a big problem, but there are many people who are skeptics, and that's okay. And there are also many industries that are going to be negatively affected. The industries are going to be hurt if we try and solve this global warming problem. For example, the fossil fuel industry and manufacturing that requires process heat, which is mostly from natural gas, I mean, that, that's going to have to change. And according to the UN and pretty much most of the scientists, we need to almost completely, 99%, eliminate the use of fossil fuels, starting with coal. So, you know, for industries that are using a lot of heat in certain processes, their businesses are going to decline, their expenses are going to go up, the coal companies are going to go out of business. On the other hand, there's going to be many, many new industries that are going to incredibly benefit. We have the opportunity to kind of completely redo the energy system that we have, and it's going to be better for customers in terms of economics, but it's going to be expensive. Quite frankly, I'm biased because I'm in the solar industry, and the wind industry and the EV industries are also going to benefit. So here's kind of one way that my skeptic friends can look at it. If you think that there's even a tiny possibility that global warming is a problem, consider some kind of insurance. Now, we take out insurance for catastrophic events like car crashes and fires. Now, consider efforts to dramatically reduce fossil fuels, which is kind of the first thing we've got to do as a type of insurance against possible global warming. So if you're skeptical, it might happen. Nobody can say 100% it's not going to happen. So take out insurance, spend a little bit of money, take action now. It's a prudent hedge against what could be a disaster. Now, with ordinary insurance, the policies can be expensive. Now, that's the case also with what I call global warming insurance. It's going to be expensive. But the interesting thing is, it's going to be fairly quickly cheaper than the ordinary course of business. In other words, it's cheaper to use solar and wind and hydro for electricity than fossil fuels. I mean, anybody with solar on their roof or on their business or on their home knows that it's cheaper to generate your own power than to buy it from the utility. And, you know, the same thing is going to happen if you have an electric vehicle. It's cheaper to run your car on electricity than gasoline. Now, to be clear, as I mentioned before, it's not cheaper for all industries that rely on natural gas. I mean, heck, if you're in the business of making concrete, you've got to really burn a lot of limestone and make cement. And that's, you know, natural gas is the way to do that. It also costs money to make the upfront investments in more renewables and also possibly nuclear. So this IPCC report starts out with a description of the problem. And I'm just going to mention it briefly. Human activities are 
It's estimated to have caused approximately one degree C of global warming above pre-industrial levels. It's one degree C. It's 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, global warming is likely to reach 1.5 degrees C between 2030 and 2052. If it continues to increase at the current rate, climate-related risks for natural and human systems are higher for global warming of 1.5 degrees C than present. In other words, it's going to be bad for mankind. It's going to be bad for the environment if the temperature goes up. You know, some parts of the environment are going to benefit. You know, heck, we can do some farming in Siberia. But areas that are kind of hot now, like desert areas, are going to be impossible to live there. Now, the risks depend on the magnitude and the rate of warming. So depending on how fast this warming happens and where you are, it's going to be a problem. Geographic location, really important. The levels of development and vulnerability. If you're in a big city on the coast, you know, that's already kind of really close to sea level and the, the water goes up by two feet, doesn't sound like a lot, but that's going to mean that in a storm, you're going to be flooding regularly. And it's also going to depend on the choices and implementation of adaption and mitigation options. In other words, it depends on how we try and react to that. More on these mitigation options later. Mitigation, it's what we're doing about it. Okay, now, the different climate models out there project big differences in regional climate between the present day and global warming of 1.5 degrees C. These models aren't perfect. They pretty much almost 100% consensus that there's a problem, but they're not exactly specific on exactly where and how bad. Now, these differences among different locations and, and climates include increases in the average temperature in most land and ocean regions. You know, keep in mind, the ocean temperature is going to go up too. That's already happening. And, and some people are stating that the the storms we're having, the hurricanes we're having, the, the Hurricane Michael that we just encountered recently is because the water temperature has gone up a little bit more. The air temperature has gone up a little bit more. And what happens, as you know, is if you have warmer air, that warmer air can hold more moisture. And so you get more seawater basically going up into the air, and that's going to turn into rain when it gets over land. So these differences also are going to have an impact on the really hot extremes in most inhabited regions. So you kind of think about some of the equatorial areas that are really, really hot. You know, they're talking about those areas becoming uninhabitable. Another change is going to be heavy precipitation in several regions. We're, we're already seeing that now. And the probability of drought and precipitation deficits, that's just another word for drought, in some areas. Now, the sea level is going to continue to rise well beyond 2100. Boy, that's a long way out. You know, we'll, we'll probably be dead now. Maybe our brains will be encased in some kind of silicon computer. Who knows? But, yeah, but the sea levels are going to keep going up. The magnitude and rate of this rise depends on the future emissions pathways. So now, when the UN report talks about future emission pathways, they look at different scenarios based on what we do starting now and how quickly we react to the situation, react and mitigate. So the slower rate of sea level rise enables greater opportunities for adaption in the human and ecological systems of small islands, low-lying coastal areas, and deltas. In other words, if the sea level rises really slowly, it gives us more time to move inland. It gives us more time to, to build dikes around the water. If it rises really fast or, you know, surprisingly, and it doesn't just kind of go up gradually, basically it goes up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then you get a big storm. A storm surge soaks everything. I mean, you know, that, that's right. That's happening right now down in Florida. All right. Now, estimates of the global emissions outcome of current 
nationally stated mitigation ambitions would lead to global greenhouse gas emissions in 2030 of 52 to 58 gigatons of CO2. Yeah, that number's kind of, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me quite candidly. What's a gigaton of CO2? It just sounds like a lot. But basically what they're saying is, based on what everybody has signed off on in the Paris Climate Agreement, that's currently stated, that's what that's all countries are going to do. By the way, U.S. pulled out of that. If we kind of follow those commitments, we would not be able to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C, even if we supplement by very challenging increases in the scale and ambition of emissions reductions after 2030. In other words, based on what the climate agreement says, we still won't be able to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C because we're not acting hard enough, fast enough in the short term before 2030. That's only 12 years away. That means if we don't act very substantially, very soon, we won't be able to achieve this 1.5 degrees C target. If it goes up by 2 degrees C, it actually is a heck of a lot worse. It's not linear. The other thing that in the report is relying on unproven and unscalable technologies such as future large-scale deployment of carbon dioxide removal, and they, they have a nice TLR for that, three-letter acronym, CDR, can only be achieved if global CO2 emissions start to decline well before 2030. In other words, if we're hoping for some magic technological bullets that are going to start turning up after 2030, we're going to be screwed. It's not going to help because we're already kind of achieving, we're already getting over that global warming threshold. So we have to use technologies now. We have to do things now or that we're 100% sure are going to work very quickly, not to kind of hope, oh, our children will figure this out in 15 years or 20 years. It's going to be too late. Okay. What can we do to reduce emissions this substantially in time? What are the mitigation options? And so this UN IPCC report went into a lot of those details. <laughs> it was really hard to kind of pick through their acronyms and understand what they're talking about, but they have a lot of good recommendations. So, you know, the first one is just really clear. Three words, stop using coal. Coal is by far and away the most polluting in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, fuel. There's places that are still using it. We're kind of cutting back in the U.S. And interestingly, one of the reasons why we're cutting back in the U.S. is because natural gas is just a lot cheaper. The, the dilemma is natural gas still generates a lot of CO2, not nearly as much as, as, as coal. All right. Next recommendation. Almost completely stop using natural gas and other fossil fuels. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but the idea of carbon capture and sequestration currently doesn't work economically. All the pilot plants haven't worked. There was a big effort. I can't remember the name of the, the organization, the, the utility. They were building a carbon capture and sequestration plant down in the southeast somewhere. And just recently, they pulled the plug on that whole plan. They said, Geez, we, after spending billions of dollars, we couldn't get the carbon capture and sequestration to work on this coal plant. So guess what? They just put in a natural gas plant. That's it. It's kind of obvious in retrospect. But thermodynamically, carbon capture and sequestration doesn't work. So what I mean by thermodynamically, in other words, in order to take the carbon out of the fossil fuel that you're burning, you need to put a lot of energy into recapturing that carbon, which means that the net amount of energy that comes out is a lot less and you're spending a lot more money. So your cost for energy goes way up if you're trying to take the carbon out of a coal plant. And it's cheaper to use natural gas, which is still generating carbon dioxide, and it's way cheaper to use wind or solar or hydro or even nuclear. Okay. 
Next recommendation, replace these fossil fuels with solar, wind, hydro, and nuclear. And, you know, this report talks about the possibility of nuclear really seeing a renaissance, and there are countries in the world that's using a lot of it. The dilemma here in the U.S. is nuclear is more expensive than other fuels, so it's, it's actually being... It's not being deployed. The nuclear plants are getting shut down, and they're having a lot of trouble. I think there's only like one or two plants still under construction in the U.S., and those might not even get done. Now, the other idea is using hydrogen as a fuel. Hydrogen currently comes from natural gas. If you're going to change natural gas into hydrogen, which is kind of a nice fuel, it's also a way of storing energy, it doesn't really help. You're still emitting a lot of carbon dioxide. However, Hydrogen that comes from electrolyzing water, in other words, you take water, you put a cathode anode in there, you run power through it, run the current through it, and bubbling out of the water, you can, you can basically break the liquid water down to its constituent oxygen goes into the air. That's good. We can breathe it. And it goes into hydrogen. You capture the hydrogen, and you can use that as a fuel. So if you're changing water into hydrogen and oxygen using electricity from wind and solar. That's okay. That's a good thing. All right. Other recommendation, deployment of batteries, stored hydro, and other storage technologies. The amount of storage we're going to need is enormous because, heck, you know, we need power in the winter and in the night too. And so you have to generate a lot of solar and wind during the day and then store all that for when the sun's not shining. All right. And then demand response. They didn't really specifically talk about it in there, but these are just giving customers incentives to use less power during peak times. All right. But after going all through this, it's still not enough. There's still too much CO2 currently in the air. And there's the amount of the concentration of CO2 in the air keeps going up. So the, the challenge becomes, how do we remove the CO2 that's currently in the air? And how do we remove the growing amounts of CO2 that are going into the air? Because we're still burning a lot of fossil fuels. So there's three interesting ways of doing it. One of them, carbon dioxide removal or CDR. Another one is called bioenergy with CCS. And I'll talk about what these are in a minute. And then removals in the agriculture, forestry, and land use sectors. Okay. Carbon dioxide removal, or CDR, refers to the large-scale removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So basically, you got these big plants that are going to basically suck in air, which has carbon dioxide, oxygen, nitrogen, a few other things. And then it's going to be pulling the carbon dioxide, just the carbon dioxide out, and then sequestering that carbon dioxide permanently somewhere. Now, a lot of these plants right now have been piping it deep underground in wells. That's not going to last forever, ever, but temporarily it's okay. Some of these plants are using that carbon dioxide for other processes. Well, if the carbon dioxide ends up back in the air again, you're not really doing any good. And as I mentioned before, sequestering the carbon dioxide, getting the carbon dioxide out of air, if it wasn't part of a fuel process already, it's expensive. I mean, you're just going to basically be using wind and solar to drive these plants to pull CO2 out of the air. Not a bad idea. This is something that, that might really take off 20 or 30 years from now. Now, keep in mind, CDR, carbon dioxide removal, is a different approach than removing CO2 from the stack emissions of large fossil fuel plants like power stations. So this is taking CO2 out of the existing air rather than taking CO2 out of the waste stream that's coming out from burning coal. Okay. All right. Now, a couple more of these concepts that are a little bit out there. Bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. It's a potential technology which produces negative carbon dioxide emissions. Negative carbon dioxide emissions is kind of what we're talking about. This is a process, a technology, an idea that will reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. 
So basically what this is, is combining bioenergy, energy from biomass, with geologic carbon capture and storage. In other words, geologic, you take the carbon dioxide and put it into the ground. Basically the concept is plant a lot of trees and crops, which, you know, when trees grow, crops grow, they're taking carbon dioxide out of the air, they're, they're building it into the structure of the plant. And so basically plants are taking carbon dioxide out of the air. That's what they use for photosynthesis, sunlight and carbon dioxide and a little bit of oxygen. Now, the good thing is that you're sequestering the carbon temporarily in the, the plant itself. Now, if we then burn that tree, burn that plant, burn that fuel, you know, prairie grasses or whatever, then that carbon dioxide goes back up into the air. It's, it doesn't do any good. But if we have power plants that are burning these trees and, and fuel plants and then taking the carbon dioxide out of the waste stream, from the emissions and capturing that and sequestering that, then we're actually, we have a process where we're using the plants to take the CO2 out of the air. And then we're using this sequestration process to take the CO2 and lock it away so it doesn't go back into the air. So basically we burn trees and crops, capture all the CO2, then plant more trees and crops. It's something that could work, but you got to imagine it's going to be done on an enormous scale. Okay. The last one is called removals in the agriculture, forestry, and other land use sectors. So this is basically a technology in which pastures and agricultural lands are converted to forests and energy crops. And then additional forests are planted. And I learned a new word, afforestation. It's kind of like the opposite of deforestation. But basically, afforestation is planting trees in places where trees weren't before. Trees are really good ways of taking CO2 out of the air. And then as we do that, we can then, you know, we, we would then be able to burn those trees or, or use that as fuel. So the, the dilemma is we have to take an enormous amount of land to overcome these problems. And then you got a lot of social issues and technological issues and environmental barriers because people want to use the land for other things. And the land is owned by the governments and individuals. And if you say, hey, we want to use that to capture carbon dioxide, it's a problem. All right. So the dilemma is pathways limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C. It's going to require rapid and far-reaching transitions in energy, which we talked about, land, urban and infrastructure, including transportation buildings, that, that we've kind of never encountered before. It's on an unprecedented scale. But we have in the past, I mean, you just look at how dramatically the world economy has grown over the last hundred years. We've done th things like that in the past. So from a timing standpoint, we can make these transitions, that there's political will and there's cost issues. Okay, so now this is where we kind of get down to the number thing. How much is it going to cost? Total annual energy-related investments from 2015 to 2050 is estimated to be around $900 billion a year. So, you know, let's round it up to a trillion dollars. The world has to spend $1 trillion a year to make the changes necessary to keep the global temperature from going down by going up by more than 1.5 degrees C. And so the investments that are required in low carbon energy technologies, this trillion dollars, it's five times more than what we're spending right now. All right, so it's really going to be tough. All right. So I've, I've recently read some articles after all these global emergency reports, you know, about what people can do. Great idea to take personal energy actions. Do low-cost things like use public transportation, less appliances, you know, put solar on your roof, buy an EV, all these things. It's all going to help a little bit. But the reality is humanity has to spend five times more than we have been in, in the past. 
And that's going to take the right policies. So what we're really going to need to do is make sure that we're electing politicians who have a practical plan to reduce the risk of global warming. Specifically, we need politicians that are going to act aggressively now to use less fossil fuels, more efficient vehicles, and to make tremendous investments in wind and solar and batteries and nuclear and even things we don't know about yet. So the best way to do this is with policies. We're going to need more economically efficient options, such as cap and trade or carbon tax. Economists say carbon tax is the best way to do it. Well, politicians really have to take the lead on this. Some countries are doing it. California's got a cap and trade program. It's working. So nevertheless, this won't be easy. It won't be cheap, but it's going to be essential if we want our grandchildren to live in a world like the one we have now. Okay, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast. 